This episode of Inside Oz contains strong language as well as discussions about strong violence and sexual content. I'm going to give you ten minutes to get your hands off my dick. God comes to visit me every once in a while. Actually, he comes more often than I'd like. McManus, you're fucking on my floor, McManus. My dick, you don't have to mop it up again. You lose an eye, you get kicked in the balls, you have a face full of shit, you become a different man. This is a prison, not a democracy. Up with me, my brother. Please, sir, may I fuck my wife? Don't you walk away, you cocksucker. Come on, Dad. Praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. How do you keep that hat on your head? No quote. Right now we're on the edge of oblivion. We're on the brink of disaster. And before we all join hands and jump, I want another chance. everybody and welcome to episode 7 of Inside Oz, the world's only audio review podcast. As always, I'm yours, Neil Thompson. Before we get into the episode, I've got a small announcement to make. I did post this on social media a couple of weeks back, but as the episode hasn't been recorded, I figured I would just mention it here too. With the package that I have with them, and having looked at the statistics for the show, at this point in time the show will no longer be available on SoundCloud. The basic package for SoundCloud only allows for three hours of total upload time. As each episode of Inside Oz runs about an hour each, I've hit that limit pretty quickly. To upgrade to a worthwhile package that would allow me to keep the show on SoundCloud would cost me £10 a month. Now, I would be willing to do that, however, after doing some number crunching, it's clear that SoundCloud is the poorest performing platform that the show was available on. So I've taken the decision to focus on the other podcasting platforms where the show is performing better. That being iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Podbean, Acast, etc. That's not to say that the show may not return to SoundCloud in the future, but at this time it is not beneficial to have it there. The show will remain available for free at all other major podcasting platforms, and I will mention those again at the end of the show. Having got that out of the way, let's turn our attention to the penultimate episode of Series 1, that being Episode 7, Plan B. Written by Tom Fontana and directed once again by Darnell Martin, it was originally broadcast on August 18th, 1997 and holds an 8.8 rating on IMDb. So let's get to it. The best laid schemes of mice and men most often go astray. That was written by Mr. Robert Burns way the fuck back in 1785 and it still is news. In Oz we got all sorts of schemes to change our lousy lonely lives. But no matter how much we plot and plan, something outside our control always comes along and fucks things up. You take Tobias Beach. Six months ago, if you'd have asked him where he planned to be today, he'd have sat at his daughter's fourth birthday party. Instead, he's howling at the moon thanks to some bad angel dust. Old Vern Schillinger. Before he got the Oz, he wanted to get America back on the right track. The white track. Now Beach just smashed a piece of glass in his pure Aryan eye. Jimmy McManus. He's slowly watching as his dream for the perfect prison far away. And then there's the Reverend Kareem Saeed. He was working on a way to bring the brothers together, to fight the injustices we endure in the name of justice. He was working it and working it, till a heart attack worked him over. So Act 1 opens with Augustus quoting the Robert Burns poem to a mouse, saying the line, The best laid plans of mice and men often go astray. That's the modern version of the line. The original poem has it written as the best laid schemes of mice and men gang after glare. So that's one for the English literature students among you. Always reminds me of a routine by Eddie Izzard as well from his definite article show. And we can swing with that, but if we just remove that for a second and deal with the rest of the sentence, the bit that we don't really ever look at very carefully... The best laid plans of mice often go wrong. Now, I just want to know exactly what mice plans is he talking about here? And he says the best laid plans of mice often go wrong. Does that mean the more less thought out mice plans often work quite well? If mice just wing it and go with the flow, they can really pull off quite a strategic idea. He was off his trolley! Augustus talks us through about how everybody in Oz has some sort of scheme or plan, but something always comes along and messes those plans up. 
They've changed things up slightly in this episode too by having Augustus in its box, but it isn't doing its normal rotating. Instead, one of the walls is acting like a screen and Augustus is operating some sort of small slideshow projector showing various pictures of the different groups and relationships that have formed since the start of the series. And we'll see more and more of this as we go through the show. They come up with a number of different ways for Augustus to deliver his parts. He talks us through about how if we met Beecher six months previous, he would have been planning his daughter's fourth birthday, but instead he's, and this is how Augustus puts it, howling at the moon due to some bad angel dust. And we see Beecher in the hall following his attack on Schillinger. He's on the floor of the cell as he tries to crawl out the open door, but an officer closes it and Beecher is left screaming. Speaking of Schillinger, we cut to the hospital where we see that he's getting his bandages removed from his eye and we see two very large scars from the surgery to remove the glass from his eye. And Augustus says that his plan was to get America back on track, that being the white track. We get a quick shot of McManus at his office window watching a fight getting broken up and he's seeing his dream of the perfect prison beginning to fade away. And we finish with Saeed in his hospital bed following his heart attack. And Augusta says that Saeed's plan was to bring the inmates together in peace. So this is a good little recap scene of some of the main players rather than relying on the audience having to remember. It's a method that's kind of been lost in modern day TV as binge watching has become more and more prevalent. You're not having to wait a week until the next episode airs. But for the time it served its purpose well. There's a flashback to Saeed meeting with Husseini in the last episode, showing Saeed breaking up the fight with Scott Ross, as well as Husseini's weird shadow boxing moment, and finally seeing Husseini leaving Saeed to have his heart attack rather than going to get help. They decided to put a blue tint to these bits of footage, which differentiates the flashbacks from the normal scenes, and again, it works well. As we come back into the main story, we get a report on the TV about Saeed's condition, which is on the news. Obviously, this wouldn't happen for most inmates, but as Saeed has some form of celebrity status due to his actions outside, it's obviously been deemed worthy enough of reporting on. Husseini is at the back watching the report, and he says that right before having his heart attack, Saeed told Husseini that he wanted him to take over as the leader of the Muslims, and that he wanted him to carry on Saeed's work and start a holy war in Oz. Some of the group nod their approval and seem to accept Husseini as the new leader. Obviously, we know that this is complete nonsense. We cut back to the hospital where Schillinger is reading, Groves is washing Ribado's feet, and Alvarez sees Saeed waking up. He tells him that it was 60-40 that he wasn't going to make it. He tells Groves to go get Gloria, but Saeed starts to get out of his bed. Everyone tells him to stay in bed apart from Schillinger, who says something that I, I won't repeat. Saeed pulls out his IV and tells Groves to go get his clothing. Groves looks at him like he's either seen a ghost or some sort of resurrection. So maybe he's starting to believe in Catholicism rather than just being in it for the communion wafers. Gloria checks Saeed over and McManus and his baseball cap are there too. Saeed tells her that he's perfectly well, but Gloria reminds him that he nearly died and he was lucky this time and to consider what if it happens again. Saeed says that he knows what he must do to stay alive and he tells McManus that he wants to go back to Emerald City. McManus tells him that that's okay, but he has to agree to take the medication that Gloria prescribes which Saeed does agree to do, and he's escorted out by an officer. Why McManus believes Saeed this time, I'm not sure. Maybe it's because this time he's actually heard Saeed say that he will, whereas before, Saeed says that he hadn't decided what he was going to do in terms of the prescription he was being, well, prescribed. We cut to M-City, where Adebisi is blowing some bubbles down onto Ryan and Nino's card game, and we see some others are watching the TV. There's a new inmate sat on his own on the steps, but we'll find out who that is a little bit later on. The Muslims are praying as Husseini turns around and he sees Saeed standing there. He does a great, oh shit, face as Saeed confronts him about not helping him. Husseini Masha! You saw that I was dying and yet you walked away? You wanted me to die. No, Kareem, come on, bro. I would never want you. No. This man is not our brother. He is our enemy. As of this moment, this man is cast out. No Muslim will speak to him, look him in the eye, or acknowledge him. You wanted the death of another? Right now, you're dead to us all. So Saeed casts Husseini out of the group and they all leave. As they leave, Husseini's standing on his own. As the camera moves, you can just catch a moment where Saeed, after backing away from Husseini, he turns around and he nearly walks right into the card table and falls into Nino's lap. He kind of does this bumbling sidestep to avoid him, it would have made one hell of an outtake. We then cut to the cafeteria where Poet is performing another piece. Ordinarily I would play the audio of that, but this one goes for quite some time, but to summarise it focuses on the theme of poverty and how the character in the poem is going to overcome it by kidnapping the president's wife. 
While Mums would often come up with poems off the cuff, his opening line, Kidnap the President's Wife Without a Plan, that could have been taken from the song Live at the Barbecue, or Live at the Barbecue, by Main Source, who were a, a hip-hop group based in New York that were, they were quite popular in the early 90s. That track also features the on-record debut of the rapper Nas as well, or is either Nas or Nas, I'm not too sure. Either way, any hip-hop fans out there, that's his debut. So Husseini tries to sit with the rest of the Muslims, but as soon as he sits down, they all stand up and leave. We see him in the gym later on, trying to join in a game of basketball with some of the group. He keeps asking them to pass him the ball, but none of them do. I don't know why he thought they would do, to be perfectly honest. Husseini tries to talk to Arif while he's having a shave, but Arif just quotes prayers praising Allah while Husseini protests his innocence. And he also tries to make out that Saeed is crazy. Arif loops the prayer again as Husseini leaves, so while he isn't ignoring him completely, he wasn't exactly going to engage in an actual conversation with Husseini. We then cut to Husseini and Saeed in their pod at Lights Out, where Husseini tells Saeed not to fall asleep as he might not wake up, basically saying that he's going to kill Saeed in his sleep. Saeed knocks on the glass of the pod, where we see two other members of the group who are in the pod next to them. They come up to the glass and stare into Husseini's eyes, so he isn't going to get the job done tonight, he's going to have to think of some other way. The next day, Husseini goes to see Adebisi, who he's never talked to before but calls Adebisi his African brother. He tells Adebisi that Saeed is responsible for the death of Jefferson Keane, hoping that that would get Adebisi on his side. But Adebisi says that Keane is ancient history. Husseini says that Saeed has to die, but Adebisi gets off the bed and tells him that he knows what's going on with the Muslims casting him out and how Husseini thinks they have some sort of connection due to having similar skin tones. Adebisi runs his finger over Husseini's cheek, so he's still playing his sexual power games, and then just laughs at Husseini before pulling his pants down and sitting on the toilet. He's showing complete disrespect to Husseini, and even dismisses him by calling him Little Man and tells him to go try the man next door. We then see Husseini talking to McManus in his office, who I don't think is who Adebisi was talking about. I'm not 100% on the geography of M-City, but I'm pretty certain that McManus's office is some distance away. McManus is throwing a tennis ball against the window like Steve McQueen in The Great Escape, as Husseini is telling him about Saeed wanting to start a riot, the camera changes angle and it turns out that Leo is there too. He asks Husseini if he has any evidence, but Husseini says that he only has what Saeed was telling him about wanting to start a holy war. Leo tells him that he needs something more tangible and asks if there's been any stockpiling of weapons. Husseini says that any weapons that they have are homemade, but Mamanus cuts in asking why Husseini is giving up Saeed. Husseini claims that he wants to stop the violence, but Mamanus calls that bullshit. Leo tells him to knock it off, but Mamanus calls Husseini so transparent it's laughable and dismisses him from the office. An officer takes Husseini away as he continues to try talking, but McManus just tells him to get out. Leo says that Husseini's motive for betraying Saeed isn't important, but that his information is. McManus, however, doesn't think that they're going to get anything worthwhile out of Husseini due to him being out of the loop with the Muslims, and he says that he wants to move into a different cell block to avoid the bad blood between Saeed and Husseini becoming something bigger, or as he puts it, erupting into something bigger. He firmly tells Leo he's out, a good showing of McManus putting his foot down about something to his boss. Leo asks how long it's been since they had a shakedown, Apparently it's been a couple of weeks, and he says that it's about time that they add another. So Diane announces the shakedown over the PA, and we see all manner of weapons being discovered, including a bedspring, which Adebisi had on him. Something gets taken out of Ryan's back pocket, I couldn't make out what, it was most likely drugs. And there's also an officer carrying an evidence bag, which has a knife in it, and there's a screwdriver in there, and then there's another knife. There's a metal chain gets found, a soda can... And we then see Groves get wrestled to the ground and he has his toothbrush confiscated. Usually you see that the plastic has been sharpened and it's often called a shank. Last thing to go into the bag is a pair of scissors. Shakedown's completed and McManus has the inmates lined up with their hands on their heads. Gentlemen, I can't put you all in the hole because the hole is full right now. And I can't transfer you out of Emerald City because all the cells in Oz happen to be full too. But what I can do is take away your privileges. No TV, no gym. No phone calls for one month. Gee, Dad, I hope I can still make it to the prom. <laughs> Two months! You happy, Alvarez? That's all. The man turns to Diane saying that it looks like everyone except Saeed has a weapon. Diane saying that Saeed isn't stupid. We pan across to Verhew asking who the rat was, and Ryan points upwards saying that he heard it was Husseini, as we pan up and see that Husseini is once again all on his lonesome. We then see Husseini leaving his pod with his belongings, and the Muslims are all lined up on the walkway. As he passes, one by one they turn their backs to him, with Saeed giving him a disappointed headshake before turning his back. 
Hussaini says to Saeed that Saeed was supposed to be a teacher, but all that he taught him was that his god was full of hate and vengeance, and that Saeed should be careful because god could turn on him too. He leaves his headwear on Saeed's shoulder before leaving. The turning the back from the Muslims is an incredible showing of disrespect, but it works so well. It's something that me and my mates have done numerous times at gigs and festivals over the years, when we've either come across a really terrible band, or we have a really good spot in the crowd that we don't want to give up for the band that we want to see, but there's another band, you know, playing before them. I remember James Hetfield from Metallica saying that he used to do this when he was a kid too. It's so much worse than giving them shit or chancing stuff at them just turning away from him. It's basically saying, you're not even worth me giving you shit. I suppose it's kind of dickish, but, you know, that's what freedom of expression's all about. Hussaini goes down the stairs where all the other inmates are waiting for him, and they take it in terms to spit in Hussaini's face. He winces at the first few, but then just accepts what's coming to him. It's very similar to the Walk of Atonement from Game of Thrones, only Hussaini gets to keep his clothes on and he isn't being pelted with rotten food or shit. He arrives at his new cell, which looks like it's the ones in protective custody, and he's once again alone. Camera pans away as Augustus narrates, then pans back again, and we see that Husseini has committed suicide in his cell by cutting his throat, thus ending Act 1 and ending the ballad of Husseini Mashar. You want to kill a man? Stick a shank in his chest. You want to torture a man? Feed his loneliness. Feed him for friendship, for peace. He will search everywhere. And when he realizes that he won't find it, he will destroy himself. So Act 2 kicks off with Saeed talking to the press about the recent deaths in Oz, and says that he's worried about the brutality that the inmates are suffering. While the reporter says that the death of Husseini was a suicide, Saeed claims that that is what the authorities want people to believe, and says that six men have died under bizarre circumstances while Leo just sits in his office. He makes mention about the FBI being brought in to investigate, but asks where their report is. The reporter asks if he feels that the FBI report is being repressed, but Saeed says that he isn't sure and that he hopes that the press can find that out. We cut to a news report of an FBI spokesman, so unless we've had a huge time jump it would appear McManus's two-month TV ban wasn't enforced very well. He says that the FBI investigation is still ongoing and that they are not going to rush it just to satisfy the media or inmates. We then move up to McManus's office where Leo is speaking to Saeed, saying that he enjoyed his little media performance, but that it's going to be his last as he is enforcing a blackout of anyone being able to speak to the press. Saeed asks him why the term blackout is a bad thing, but you can get white out, or tipex as we call it in this country, in a little bottle. McManus tells Saeed not to be smug and calls him a son of a bitch, so he clearly doesn't want to play the game of semantics. He then says that since the day that Saeed got to Oz, he's tried to destroy everything that McManus has built and what he stands for. Saeed implies that McManus is suffering from the sin of pride, and that he's given himself too much importance, and says that the issue is bigger than McManus, and bigger than himself. He says that Leo can enforce his blackout, but there will always be a man to tell the truth, and that the truth will be heard. He asks if he can leave, as it is time for him to go pray, and Leo gives McManus a very nonchalant look before he goes. Cut to the ground floor where the Muslims are praying and Diane is reading out a memo stating that according to new rules from the warden, effective immediately no inmate is allowed to use prayer beads, prayer mats or oils for religious or other purposes and that inmates are no longer allowed to wear similar clothing or headwear that identifies them as a member of a group, gang or cult. So this is Leo and probably McManus too just saying a big fuck you to Saeed and trying to re-establish themselves as being in control. Some of the Muslims nearly come to blows with the officers, but Saeed calms the situation. He tells Diane that this order is a violation of their right to practice religious freedom, but Diane says that they can practice all they want and can even pray until the cows come home. But the constitution does not guarantee that they, as prisoners, have the right to any belongings. Diane says that things can go one of two ways and that she votes for no blood. Saeed takes a moment before he tells the group that this is a meaningless gesture and that their faith is in their hearts, not beads or mats and he then hands his kufi to Diane. Later in the cafeteria, Leo is at a podium and he asks for everybody's attention and that he has news for all inmates. 
says that the FBI report will be released that day and it will emphatically state that the deaths of Sanchez, Ortolani, Post, Martinez and Markstrom were all killed by inmates, which causes a large reaction from those in the cafeteria. Leo tells them to settle down and states that Husseini's death has been ruled a suicide, but as he is saying this, Saeed is speaking to another inmate who just starts to bang his cutlery on the table. It's not long before others join in and soon enough all inmates are slamming their tables in unison. Leo continues to tell them to be quiet and says that the report may state that some officers may have been involved in the killings, all the while the inmates are still banging on their tables. He tells them that unless they quiet down he isn't going to be able to finish, and with that he gives up trying and goes to leave, and it's at that point that Saeed drops his tray onto the table and everybody stops banging before letting out a loud cheer for Saeed. So we see that Leo is in fact continuing to lose control and the power is shifting to the inmates, specifically to Saeed, and this table banging gesture puts Saeed over huge as a leader. We saw back in episode 1 the control that he has over members of his own group by getting one of them to punch him in the face, and this is a continuation of that. Groves is in the cafeteria and takes a long admiring look at Saeed, almost like he has a newfound respect for him. We return to M-City where Groves approaches Saeed and tells him that he thinks that the thing with the spoons and the whole Allah thing is awesome. And he leaves after telling Saeed, Asayami, I like him. Not quite right there, Groves, but at least he tried. I like that he addressed him as Mr. Saeed too. Like I say, he seems to have a lot of respect for Saeed. Groves returns to his pod where Alvarez is hanging out and he asks Groves if he's turning Muslim. Groves calls Saeed a great speaker and that Saeed claims that Leo is guilty of worse crimes than any of them. He asks Alvarez if he's ever killed anybody, but Alvarez says that he hasn't. Groves tells him that he thought it would be hard to murder his parents, but it actually wasn't. Alvarez asks how he killed them, and Groves explains that he did it with a ball-peen hammer, which is the smaller type of hammer with one flat face and a smaller rounded face. So we see Groves' flashback where he hits his mum and dad once each in the back of the head with a hammer before taking a seat in front of the TV. Donald Groves is played by Sean Whitesell, who got his start in TV acting by taking small roles on shows such as the original Law and Order, Hanging with Mr. Cooper, and Pacific Blue. His first recurring role came when he landed the part of Dr. Eli Devilbiss in Homicide Life on the Street, making several appearances on the show between 1993 and 1999, and making him another member of the Oz cast that Tom Fontana had worked with before. So Groves is convicted of two counts of first-degree murder and sentenced to life imprisonment. While there has been constant references to him having eaten his parents, the act of cannibalism is not actually illegal in any US state except for Idaho. According to a 2011 article from the Journal of Law and Social Deviance, in Idaho, anthropophagy, called cannibalism by statute, is illegal. The statute makes it an offence to drink human blood or consume human flesh, punishable by up to 14 years in prison. The law was conceived in 1990 as a response to fears that ritualised practices involving sexual abuse and torture of minors would include the act. The legislators criminalised the consumption of human blood and flesh out of concern that children would either be sacrificed, eaten, or forced to consume tissue of murder or necrotic bodies during ritual practices. So to cut a long story short, Idaho outlawed it due to fears of people being sacrificed in some sort of devil worship ritual or satanic panic as it was dubbed in the media. It was probably passed by the same lawmakers who think that people hear subliminal messages by playing songs backwards or some other similar nonsense. Grove says that he thinks he should kill Leo, almost like doing it is going to impress Saeed in some way, but Alvarez tells him that he should go see Gloria in the hospital and get a prescription, and how she has put him on antidepressants and that he is sailing by being on them. Groves tells him, nah, my first idea is best, and <laughs> he's going to kill Leo the next chance he gets. We transition to a scene in the hospital, this time with a lovely green tint, in which Groves lunges at Leo with a weapon, but an officer dives in the way trying to tackle Groves, but he ends up taking the weapon in the chest. And we then transition to a courthouse where Groves has been convicted of first-degree murder in the death of corrections officer Lawrence Smith, and he's now been sentenced to death. We cut to death row where Groves is talking to himself by saying killing murderers is genocide. Leo approaches the cell and Groves tells him that the officers have been beating him up, and you can see that Groves' face is swollen and bruised. Leo tells Groves that he's been condemned to die and says that he can pick any method that he wants for the execution. Groves tells Leo that he shouldn't be talking to him because Leo should be dead. Leo isn't having any of it though, and he gives Groves a couple of execution options, but Groves says that he wants to die by firing squad. Leo tells him that he's personally going to paint the target on Groves' heart and he goes to leave, but Groves says that him killing Leo wasn't meant to be personal, it just had to be done. 
Leo goes over to the officers and tells them to come to his office when the shift is done and explain why he shouldn't fire them. So this is another good example of Leo showing his authority and also says something about the way he treats Groves. Even after Groves has attempted to kill him, he isn't out for revenge and thereby isn't going to tolerate Groves being beaten up as some sort of revenge for him. We fade into the next scene in the cafeteria slash chapel where Father Ray is conducting a service for Officer Smith. He says that it would be easy to punish all of the inmates for a crime committed by just one of them. And right on cue we cut to Ryan taking a kick in an M-City by an officer and Vehu being pushed down a corridor as officers hit him with their nightsticks and they lock him in the hall. Ray says that Officer Smith would want his death to bring about peace as we see Groves headbutting the wall of his cell as officers look on laughing. The service concludes and Officer Hunt approaches his Leo inquiring about the firing squad. Leo calls Groves a sick bastard for requesting it and that he has to put a squad together because the prison doesn't have one. Officer Hunt volunteers to be on the firing squad saying that Smith was his friend. But Leo tells him that he doesn't think that's a good enough reason and it isn't about revenge but it's about the law. So like I mentioned a moment ago, despite Groves trying to murder him, Leo is still doing everything by the book and he's holding no grudges. However, he does say that he will get back to Hunt about the squad. We then see Leo enter the hospital where Gloria is bandaging up Ryan and she tells him that the hospital is full of officer-related injuries. Leo asks Ryan what happened and he proceeds to tell Leo that he was hit for no reason by an officer. But when Leo asks him who it was, Ryan tells him that he isn't going to say because he'll get beat up worse next time. Gloria tells Leo that the officers are out of control and that Leo has to do something and he leaves by saying, I know, I know. It's interesting to see that Leo seems in control in one scene but then seems completely out of control in others. We go to Leo's office where he, McManus and Barana are having a meeting. Are you saying that random reprisals are justified? Yeah. Well, one person killed Lawrence Smith. Groves, the other inmates are innocent. Innocent? Christ. I didn't expect you to understand, McManus. What do you mean? You were never a guard. Huh? You didn't come up through the ranks like Leo, me, the rest of them. So I don't understand the, the anger, the frustration the COs go through. It's fucking bullshit. Look, Leo, you cannot keep suspending these guys just because they slap some dipshit around. Yeah, well, I can't condone it either, Lenny. We're understaffed as it is. You take experienced officers off of the rotation, what are you leaving us with? Newbies who can't handle a crisis. So what do you suggest I do? Just let our guys get through Groves' execution. Once he's in a body bag, this whole thing will fade away. So in the meantime, they wail on whoever they want. Reality's hard for you, isn't it, McManus? So an interesting bit of information dropped in there by Barano about McManus not coming up through the ranks like others. We're still finding out bits of McManus' backstory, but it seems like he comes from some sort of administrative job rather than being a correctional officer. We see Rebido returning to M-City after his stay in the hospital, and he looks a little cautious as he goes past Kenny and heads up the stairs past Diane, who then meets new member of staff Officer Gordon Wood, and I'm thinking to myself, no you're not, you're Yvonne Barksdale from The Wire. I had no idea that he had this role in Oz. This is my first go through of Oz in about, probably about 10 years. And since that time is where I've watched what I have of The Wire, so I hadn't been able to connect the dots. So Officer Wood here is played by Wood Harris. Prior to Oz, Harris had just a few credits to his name, first starring opposite Tupac Shakur in 1994's Above the Rim, which also featured Oz alumnus Leon. Harris took the role whilst enrolled at Northern Illinois University where he studied theatre arts, and he also had a small role in a 1996 episode of NYPD Blue. So Gordon tells Diane that he's there to take over from Officer Vogelzang and that he's been working at Oz for three weeks, which Diane jokingly refers to as being a veteran. Gordon points over to a pod asking whether or not that is Saeed and he says that he doesn't look so tough, but Diane tells him that looks can be deceiving. We then see Saeed heading down to the laundry room accompanied by a couple of other Muslims. They run into Gordon who's been looking through Saeed's washables. He says that he's always wondered what a famous guy like Saeed wore for underwear. Saeed tells him that he doesn't wear any, to which Gordon says that Saeed must be a wide open spaces kind of guy, and then says assalamu alaikum and leaves. So obviously that means peace be unto you, but it's used here as some sort of code word, because Saeed then reaches into the dryer and finds a gun hidden in his clothes. Indeed, Diane looks can be deceiving. And that's it, that's the last we see of Officer Gordon, so a very early role for Wood Harris there. Ordinarily I wouldn't go into the career of someone with such a small role, but I'll cover the rest of Wood Harris's career at the end of the episode, because he has had quite a decent career after this. We cut to a press conference in which Governor Devlin, who appears to have brushed aside the scandal that was haunting him the last few episodes, presents Officer Smith's mother with the Fleischmann Medal of Honour on behalf of her son, which doesn't seem to be a real medal. 
I had a look through as many names on the cast and crew that I could find, and I couldn't see anybody with this surname. So it doesn't seem to have been named after anybody that worked on the show. We then see Mrs. Smith emptying her son's locker, and she is accompanied by Leo and Father Ray. She says that she would like to watch Grove's execution, but Ray doesn't think that that's a good idea, and Leo says that the state doesn't allow family members to be present, so she wouldn't be able to anyway. While 31 states provide capital punishment, very few allow family members of the victim of the person being executed to be present. States that do allow for it include Texas, Alabama, Delaware, Georgia, Illinois, North Carolina, South Carolina, Oregon, Pennsylvania, and Washington State. Leo says that if he could help, he would, and Mrs. Smith then asks if she can visit with Groves, but Leo isn't sure what good that would do. Mrs. Smith doesn't seem sure either, but she says that the state is going to kill Groves, and that once he is dead and buried, she won't get another chance. So all three head off to death row, and Mrs. Smith introduces herself to Groves. She says that he's a handsome fella, but he broke God's law, which is love thy neighbour, and tells him that she wants to hate him, but that she can't, and she feels pity and tears, but not hate. She says that Groves is her neighbour, and that she loves him and forgives him, which makes Groves begin to cry, and they leave. A bit of a continuity error here as well. We see the hand that Groves burned his mum tattoo onto, but most of it is missing. It seems to only have one M on it. In the library, we see Devlin thanking the men who have volunteered to be part of the firing squad. He also mentions that since they announced to the press that this was how Groves wanted to be executed, that they've been swamped with phone calls from people all over the country wanting to be part of it, which is quite terrifying when you think about it. But that's looking at it from the point of view of a country which has tight gun laws. He says that he and Leo felt it was best that they handle things internally, which he says as he pats Officer Hunt on the shoulder. Leo says that there hasn't been an execution by firing squad in the state since 1872, and he introduces Barano, who worked in Utah before coming to Oz. Of the 31 states that still enforce the death penalty, Utah is the only one that offers death by firing squad, although it is only offered as an alternative to lethal injection, and there have only been three executions carried out by firing squad in the state since 1976, the last occurring in 2010. Barano explains that some people would say that firing squad is considered barbaric, but he claims that it's more humane than the electric chair. He then explains the protocol for the execution and says that each man must prepare for the emotional burden of pulling the trigger. He explains that one of the rifles will contain blank bullets, meaning that no one will ever know who delivered the fatal shot. It's a shame they're not using bow and arrows like in the Simpsons movie when Nelson Muntz used a red arrow so he knew who he killed. We cut to Leo grabbing his jacket and leaving for the day, but his phone starts to ring. He has a moment where he thinks about leaving, just, just pretend you never heard it, Leo. But Leo being Leo, he stops and answers the phone. It sounds like bad news and he says that he'll be right down. Cut to the hospital where Groves is being wheeled in after taking an overdose and Gloria orders someone to pump his stomach. Leo asks if he's going to live and Gloria tells him to ask again in 20 minutes. Leo turns to Barano and asks if Groves had been strip searched and how did he get pills into his cell, but Barano doesn't know. Gloria says that they are losing Groves and to start CPR. Leo tells her, save that little prick, Gloria saying, what does it matter, he's scheduled to die anyway, but the state says that he has to be aware that he's being executed and why, and Leo tells her to save him. So again, Leo doing things by the book here, he's going to make sure that Groves dies in the method that he should, the method that he chose in fact, and he isn't going to let Groves take the easy way out. While Gloria raises the point about how Groves is set to die anyway, it would reflect poorly on her character if she didn't do all that she could as a doctor to keep Groves alive. Back at M-City, Alvarez goes to see Ribado and asks what he's doing in his cell all day, and Ribado saying that he's just hiding. He asks Alvarez if there's any news about Groves, and we find out that Gloria saved Groves and that his execution has been delayed for a couple of hours. Alvarez questions if Ribado misses Groves, but Ribado says that he's learned not to make attachments, and that if you do, you spend your time grieving. Alvarez tells him that he's not grieving, but it's better than hiding. On death row, Father Ray's with Groves and he's saying a prayer. Groves seems to have asked for about half a dozen hamburgers as his final meal, but also seems to have left a lot of them. We also see that his mum tattoo has reappeared. The ode doesn't seem to be complete, so maybe the tattoo had healed before and he's reapplying it with a lighter that he's been hiding. From a certain angle, it looks like it says WCW, so maybe Groves was a wrestling fan. He tells Ray that he's been thinking about his final words and says that he would like Ray to write them down and give them to Mrs. Smith. He asks Ray if he'll do that, and Ray agrees to as he holds back a tear. 
Leo arrives and tells them that it's time. They walk Groves down the corridors, and as they do, they pass an open window. Groves looks out of the window, saying that the sky is a nice colour blue, and he leans out of the window a little bit, almost like he's grabbing that last moment of freedom before he's whisked away again. So in the execution room, we see a puddle of water on the floor as Groves is strapped into a chair. It's a really grimy room, probably having not been used for decades. Ray applies the sign of the cross to Groves' forehead and says a final prayer. He gives Groves a little tap on the side of the head, almost as if to say, don't worry, you'll be okay, before he leaves and a bag is placed over Groves' head. Ray tells Leo that he has to hear his last words, and he's told that he can listen through an intercom. Barano pins the target to Groves' chest, so Leo didn't paint it on after all, as the squad aim their guns waiting for the order to fire. We hear through the intercom that Barano gives Groves the chance to say his last words, but there is some interference and Ray can't make out what he is saying. Devlin tries to fix it, but turns it off completely, and we then hear the gunfire as Ray looks horrified. Back in the room, Gloria confirms the death, and Ray asks Barano what Groves' last words were. But he says, I don't know, I wasn't really listening. We get a shot of Groves' blood mixing with the puddle on the floor to close the scene, in quite a cool visual. Hunt is in the locker room, swigging on some whiskey as Diane walks in. He offers a toast to Officer Smith, who he says died too young, and one's a Groves, who he calls a freak of nature who lived too long. Hunt continues to drown his sorrows and has a bit of a drunken ramble, as Diane tells him to go home and sleep it off as we close Act 2. I killed a man who killed a man. I killed a man. Well, maybe I didn't kill him, because they're... They put blanks in one of the rifles, so maybe I, mean, I can never know for sure if I killed him or not. Only not knowing is maybe worse than knowing. Because at least if I knew. Eddie, go home. Sleep it off. <laughs> Sleep, yeah. <laughs> Something tells me I'm not going to sleep much tonight either. So Act 3 starts off with Augustus, much like Eddie Izzard, pondering the involvement of literal mice in Robert Burns' poem, saying that the mice they have in Oz don't seem too bright and that it's the rats that you need to watch out for. Remember earlier when I said about a new inmate sitting on the stairs? We get his proper introduction here. We see that this man is some sort of renowned cellist that McManus has granted an hour to practice in the cafeteria every day, assuming Father Ray doesn't have it pre-booked for something, and it's more evidence of McManus being somewhat of a star fucker. Augustus comes in and he seems to be mesmerised by the man's playing, and I'm with him on this, the cello is a beautiful instrument. Augustus asks what he's playing, but Diane, who has to supervise the man, doesn't know. She says that she's more of a Beck fan, so massive timestamp right there. Beck had really broken through as an artist with his Odelay album the previous year. His previous work had done well, but Odelay really launched him, certainly on the international scene. I'd love to know what this piece of music that he's playing is here, though. I did try to identify it using Shazam, but it couldn't find it. If anybody knows what it is, let me know. So this inmate is Eugene Dobbins, and he's played by Zool Bailey, who is a Grammy Award-winning cello player and considered to be one of the premier cello players in the world. A graduate of the Peabody Institute at John Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland, and the Juilliard School in New York City, Bailey has played with major orchestras across the world, and this is his solo acting credit. Dobbins' flashback shows him murdering another member of his orchestra using the stand of his cello to stab the man in the back, resulting in a charge of murder in the second degree and a sentence of 22 years up for parole in eight. So we see Dobbins explaining about his cello to Augustus, saying that it was made in 1744 by Johannes Kuypers. This isn't a real person, I did check that, although I did find a random translation website for the Polish language, which used Dobbins' sentence here as an example, which is probably the most random Oz reference you'll ever find. Dobbins says that the cello is priceless to him, and that's why they keep it locked in Ray's office for safekeeping. Augustus says that it's a beautiful instrument, but Dobbins says that it's also a lonely one. Augustus doesn't get quite what he means, but Dobbins is implying that he needs others to play with him. Augustus, much like myself, thinks that Dobbins sounds great on his own, but Dobbins says that he's used to playing in symphonies of up to a hundred other musicians, and that the cello on its own just isn't the same. We then see Augustus in the gym with Vahue, who is keeping his skills sharp playing some basketball. He quickly abandons that though as he sees Kenny arrive in the gym and ask him if he's got any drugs, which annoys Augustus and he goes to leave. Vahue notices and tells Augustus to come have some drugs before leaving, but Augustus says that he has to go to the bathroom. Vahue tells him not to be a pussy and basically forces Augustus 
Augustus to take a hit, which he eventually does and looks a little disappointed in himself afterwards. I'm not sure if this is a continuity error or if Vehu just doesn't catch on or not, but we learned before when Augustus was arranging his conjugal that he has no sensation in his lower body, so presumably he wouldn't know when he has to pee, and therefore would have to wear a colostomy bag otherwise he'd be pissing himself all the time. He could explain it as Augustus having to think quickly and that was what he came up with and Vehu just doesn't put two and two together, or it's a continuity mistake. Either way, Augustus goes to see Sister Pete, who I didn't think we were going to see this episode, but she snuck in right towards the end. Augustus tells her about how he was excited when Vehu first got to Oz, and how he was always his hero, and Pete deducts that Augustus is doing the drugs because he doesn't want to fall out of favour with Vehu. Augustus swears that he isn't hooked again after being sober for nearly two years, but Pete tells him that if he carries on, then he will be, and says that she will talk to Vehu insisting that she will find a way to talk to him without mentioning Augustus, and she makes him promise not to take any more drugs no matter what, to which he says, you know, yes ma'am. It's good to see that a lot of the inmates have a clear respect for Sister Pete. She finishes by telling Augustus to find a new hero, because the one he has sucks. Cut to Verhew threatening Dobbins in the drug pod, saying, you're gonna do what I tell you or I'm gonna fuck you up. Augustus enters and tells Verhew to leave Dobbins alone. Vehu tells him to butt out and the fuck off, but Augustus does all that he can do and barges Vehu with his wheelchair and Dobbins legs it out of the pod. Augustus tells Vehu that he's so out of it on the drugs that he was hurting Dobbins for no reason. He says that Dobbins has a gift and that he'll lose it if he gets involved with drugs. Vehu says, what about my gift? I'm dying in here. To which Augustus says that they're all dying. And the scene cuts to Dobbins playing his cello, this time playing Paganini's Caprice 24. And Augustus narrates about how everybody has problems. We see Augustus arrive in the cafeteria and he has another inmate with him who is playing the trumpet to accompany Dobbins. So while it might only be one person, at least Dobbins isn't playing alone anymore. The scene closes with a swooping shot showing Vehu looking annoyed, Adebisi jumping over a kitchen workstation looking like he's about to break into a dance from a Broadway musical, and McManus looking on from his office with his trademark glum face. Augustus breaks the fourth wall and addresses the audience directly, saying that he has done what Sister Pete said and found himself a new hero, and that his plan worked. We see Kenny and Vehu break into Ray's office, and Augustus says that, unfortunately for Dobbins, my best wasn't good enough, as Vehu takes Dobbins' cello and slams it down to the ground, breaking it into pieces, ending Act 3. Vehu really is an idiot. That is a cello that's over 250 years old. It will have cost hundreds of thousands of dollars, maybe even a million. You could have stolen that and sold it, you moron. We all got problems. Impossible problems. And then we meet someone who's got bigger problems than we have. Or at least, they can't handle their problems as well. And somehow, their weakness gives us strength. Simple truth number 62. You help someone, you help yourself. I did what Sister Peter Marie said. I got myself another hero. And who'd have guessed? It's me. Yeah. I'm proud because my plan worked. I did my best. But unfortunately for Dobbins, my best, it ain't good enough. So Act 4 kicks off with Ryan heading into Nino's pod asking if he wants to play some Pinochle. He obviously knows all the rules now. Nino is with Saeed and firmly tells Ryan, I'm in the middle of a conversation here, what fucking bog did you grow up on, you stupid mick bastard? And tells Ryan to do one. As Ryan walks away, Scott joins him and asks if he knows what Nino and Saeed are talking about. Scott thinks it's odd that Nino would be talking to Saeed, and Ryan tells him that he's been hearing things and apparently so has Scott, that being that the Muslims are going to start a riot. Ryan says that he's heard rumours that the Muslims are armed to the teeth and that they could take every cell block. Scott says that if that happens, they can kiss themselves goodbye. Ryan tries to suggest that maybe Nino and Saeed are making a deal, but Scott asks why they don't know about it and that maybe Nino is giving up Ryan to save himself. 
Ryan says that they need to get organised, and Scott alludes to Ryan having a card in his deck that no one knows about, that being Adebisi, who Ryan says hates Saeed as much as they do, and that he'll talk to him. We see Ryan grinding some more glasses to go into Nino's food, which Adebisi has with him. Adebisi puts the tray down so Ryan can put the glass in, and he picks a hair out of the food, which is fine, but he then seems to put it in his pocket for some reason. That was a little odd. It's subtle nuances like that which add so much to a character. Ryan says that he saw Saeed talking to Nino and wonders if he knows about them putting glass into Nino's food. Adabizi asks how Saeed would know and tries Nino's food, and Ryan has to slap his hand away. Again, it's one of those little things that just adds to the character and a little humour to the scene as well. Ryan asks if he's heard about the Muslims wanting to start a riot, and Adabizi implies that he has. So Ryan asks him which side is he going to land on if it happens. Adabizi tells him, on my feet as always, which is a funny line and goes by quickly, but again, it says a lot about Adabizi's character. He clearly has no allegiance to anybody and will either partner with whoever has the most power, or he'll join up with someone looking to gain the power, like what he's doing with Ryan here to take over Nino's drug operation. He tells Ryan that he is on his side, and then he asks how long until Nino dies from the glass that he's been ingesting so he seems to be getting a little bit impatient. Ryan says that it's not an exact science, so he doesn't know, and Adebisi reiterates that he wants Nino dead and then spits in his food for good measure. Nino sits down in the cafeteria and Ryan brings over his food, which looks like either a tuna or a prawn salad with sides of ground glass and Adebisi spit. Nino pushes it away and says that he isn't hungry. Ryan asks if Nino's stomach is still bothering him, to which Nino angrily says that it is. Ryan tells him that he's said to go see a doctor, but Nino changes the subject and says that he's got a big shipment of drugs coming in the next day, and to tell Adebisi to get everyone ready. Ryan asks Nino if there's anything going down that he should know about involving them and Saeed, but Nino tells him no, and that he would know when he's supposed to. Nino leaves to go have a lie down, and Ryan gives Dobbins the salad, who tucks in blissfully unaware of the various ingredients contained within. Later, back in M-City, Ryan is playing what might be Pinochle with Nino. I'm not too sure, as I still don't know the rules. And he motions to Nino that his nose is bleeding. Nino gets up looking terrified, and it quickly escalates into blood coming out of his ears and out of his mouth as he spits blood everywhere and yells out, CHRIST! So the glass has finally taken effect on Nino, and he is off to the hospital. We cut to the library, where Ryan and Adebisi run into Saeed. They ask if he's heard about what happened to Nina, and and Saeed sarcastically describes it as odd and asks what could have caused it, with them saying that maybe it was a bad diet. Ryan says that there is a chance that Nina might recover, and Adebisi says that until then, they're in charge and any business Saeed had with Nina goes through them. Saeed, however, says that he didn't have any business with Nina, and Adebisi says that he better not be lying as he takes an interest in Saeed's watch. Again, subtle little things adding more layers to the Adebisi character. We know that he likes watches, he was trying to steal beaches in episode 1. Saeed asks if that's a warning, Adebisi saying that it is, and Saeed then tells him that he has a warning for the two of them, and he tells them to change their ways or suffer the wrath of God. Adebisi says that he doesn't see any God, all he sees is Saeed, and he has a bad heart. Saeed tells Adebisi that he has it wrong, and that Saeed has a weak heart, and that it is Adebisi who has the bad one. Saeed leaves, but he lets Adebisi keep the watch. In the hospital, we see Ryan handing out meals, and he takes Nino's over to him. He asks Nino if he remembers calling him a stupid Mick bastard, and then says that he isn't so stupid now, and proceeds to force-feed him with God only knows what. Augustus narrates about how one big event can change a person's life, as we see images of the various bad events that have happened to Beecher so far. We get the blue flashback to Beecher throwing the chair through the pod glass at Schillinger, and then being placed in the hull. We fade to see Beecher in the present as he is laying on his stomach naked in the hull. He places his glasses on the floor and smashes them with a bucket that he has to piss in, before we go to McManus's office where he is talking to Schillinger, who now has to wear an eye patch over his right eye. Look what that cocksucker did to me. Turn me into Jolly fucking Roger. Only I'm, I'm not feeling real jolly right now. Well, Dr. Nathan says that there's a chance they can still save your eye. I was looking for the upside, huh, McManus? Beecher's gonna get out of the hole soon. It's very clear that I can't have both of you in Emerald City, so I'm trying to decide who stays. Well, let's see now. He's the crazy fuck who came at me. He's the fuck who shattered the glass that went into my eye. Are you saying his actions were unprovoked? If I say yes, would you believe me? No. You know, the two of you, you're the same fucking guy. What, me and Beecher? You know what it's like being able to see out of one eye? Your point of view gets twisted. You can see straight, but you can't see as far around. What you see is not only what's there. What's that got to do with me being like Beecher? You eggheads. 
think the world really is the way you see it. And then when you finally figure out that it's not, that you weren't even close, you get a little bitter. You get mean. I think you better go live in Gen Pop for a while. Fine. This is the first time in a while that J.K. Simmons as Schellinger has been given some proper dialogue to work with and he absolutely knocks it out of the park. Whilst he is great in the role, sometimes I wish he had been cast as someone else so that he could have featured more often, but that would then mean having to change someone else around too, so it probably worked out for the best. I'm really looking forward to talking about this whole Beecher-Schellinger story arc as we go on though. So we see Beecher return to M-City, sans glasses, and he's grown a little bit of a beard as well whilst he's been in the hall. He heads up to his pod, but the Brotherhood are waiting there for him. Beecher pushes back when one of them grabs his ass, and the fight nearly breaks out, but Diane quickly breaks it up, and Beecher heads off to see McManus. He asks McManus to move him to another cell block, but all the blocks are full, and he then asks to be moved to another prison. McManus says, do I look like a travel agent to you? Another very funny line, but it's true, he can't just move people about willy-nilly. Especially after he's just decided to move Schillinger's gen pop, which he's done to help Beecher. He starts to ask Beecher something, but he ends up leaving instead. Beecher manages to get back to his pod, although we don't know if he ran the Brotherhood gauntlet or not, and reminisces about the various things that have happened with Schillinger, before he grabs the mattress from the top bunk and throws it to the ground, this being as much as he can get of Schillinger at this point. We move to the gym where we see Schillinger on the basketball court by himself, and Beecher is in the main gym, punching away at the heavy bag, Ryan calling him an animal. He notices Schillinger and then grabs a weight plate and a bar from the floor and places them in his weightlifting belt. He heads onto the court and pulls the gate closed behind him. Schillinger tells him, you're gonna die, with Beecher responding with, not today, as he kicks Schillinger as hard as he can square in the dick, before hitting him with the weight plate. He uses the bar to lock the gate and then ties Schillinger's hands together with a piece of rope. Not sure where he got that from, he must have had it in his pocket or something. The other inmates are cheering Beecher on, saying, tie that Nazi up, and Beecher then grabs the bench from the side, holds it over his head and slams it down. On first viewing, you assume that he's slamming the legs down on Schillinger and killing him, Oh no, oh no, oh no, far from it. Instead, Beecher pulls down his trousers, sits on the bench and takes a huge shit right on Schillinger's face. And to make matters worse, he then rubs it all over with his hands before leaning back on the bench, laughing like a maniac, screaming, Zeke Heil, baby, Zeke fucking Heil, as we fade to black. So this, coupled with his new look, introduces a very different Beecher from what we've seen so far. I compared him last episode to Howard Beale in the movie Network, and much like that character, Beecher has completely snapped. Augustus narrates about how sometimes we get what we want and life gets worse as a result, and that we should be careful what we wish for as we see an image of Beecher's cold eyes looking into the camera as we cut to the credits to end the episode. We know what we need. We spent our time figuring out how to get what we want. Who can help us? Who's in the way? We make our moves and sometimes we get lucky. We get exactly what we want and life gets worse. Simple truth number 22. Be careful what you wish for, brother. Be very, very careful. So that was episode 7, Plan B. Once again, a whole lot to talk about, and we saw a few instances of the power shifting, from Saeed seemingly looking to overthrow the entire prison, Ryan and Adebisi having disposed of Nino, Beecher has finally stood up for himself and fought back against Schillinger, and Augustus continues to show more and more personality outside of his narration segments. All that, and we also lost a couple more cast members along the way. So this episode had a body count of two. First to go was Hudmitsaini Mashar, played by Roger Gwenver-Smith. Smith attended Occidental College in Los Angeles, studying history and earning an undergraduate degree in American Studies. Following this, he successfully auditioned to attend a drama school at Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut, before also studying at the Keskadi Art Center in London, England. Smith has worked with director Spike Lee on a number of projects during his career, and appeared in films such as School Days, Do the Right Thing, King of New York, Malcolm X, Poetic Justice, He Got Game, and Summer of Sam. 
1996, Smith wrote, produced and starred in a one-man theatre performance of a Huey P. Newton story, based on the life of the founder of the Black Panthers. For this role, he received an Obie Award, which focuses on off-Broadway theatre productions. Smith once again worked with Spike Lee in 2001, where the director filmed a performance of the work. Since leaving Oz, Smith continues to work in theatre, writing the play Juan and John, a play about an infamous fight in a 1965 baseball game between Juan Marichal of the San Francisco Giants and Johnny Roseborough of the LA Dodgers, a fight that Smith says traumatised him as a child when he saw it on TV. In addition to his theatre work, he also continues to work on independent films and television. In 2003, he landed a starring role in K Street, a joint venture by directors Steven Soderbergh and George Clooney. In 2007, Smith appeared in American Gangster alongside Denzel Washington and Russell Crowe, and more recently in 2016's The Birth of a Nation, chronicling the life of Nat Turner, the enslaved man who staged a slave rebellion in the 1830s. Smith continues to work with the videographer Mark Anthony Thompson and presents his work at the Bootleg Theatre in Los Angeles. The other death in this episode was that of Donald Groves, played by Sean Whitesell. Born March 11th, 1963 in Iowa Falls, Iowa, Whitesell graduated from the University of Iowa before studying at the University of California in San Diego, where he achieved a Master of Fine Arts degree. After leaving Oz, Whitesell only took a small number of acting roles before moving into production, in which he would return to Oz in 2002 as a producer on the fifth season. Whitesell also worked on Cold Case as supervising producer between 2003 and 2006, as well as co-executive producer in 2005 through 2006. In 2007, Whitesell joined the team at Fox to produce the majority of the fourth season of House, starring Hugh Laurie, co-executive producer on Memphis Beat and Perception, both shows airing on TNT, before co-executive producing the fourth and final season of The Killing on AMC. Whitesell passed away from glioblastoma, an aggressive form of brain cancer, on December 28, 2015, aged 52. Also leaving the show is Tony Massanti, playing the part of Nino Shibeta. Born in Bridgeport, Connecticut on June 30th, 1936, Massanti attended Oberlin College, receiving a Baker Scholar in Psychology, as well as attending Northwestern University School of Drama in Evanston, Illinois. Massanti worked as a schoolteacher prior to his acting career in off-Broadway theatre, and in 1962 married his wife, Jane Sparks, before making his film debut in 1965's Once a Thief. Massanti won a Best Actor Award at the Mar del Plata Film Festival for his portrayal of Joe Ferrone in 1967's The Incident. Massanti took a handful of feature roles in Italy before returning to America to appear in Spaghetti Western The Mercenary in 1968, as well as Dario Argento's directorial debut, The Bird with Crystal Plumage. Massanti also played a number of mafiosa roles, including appearances in The Last Run, The Grissom Gang, and The Pope of Greenwich Village. In 1973, Massanti starred in the TV series Toma, based on the life story of New Jersey detective David Toma. Massante wrote certain episodes of the series, but left the show the following year due to creative differences. Massante also had TV credits for The Alfred Hitchcock Hour, The Fugitive, Police Story, and The Equalizer. After leaving Oz, Massante appeared in several TV miniseries, including The Seventh Scroll, 100 Center Street, and Pompeii, before making his final feature film appearance in 2007's We Own the Night. Massante passed away following complications from surgery on November 26, 2013, aged 77. As I mentioned before, I also wanted to make note of the career of Wood Harris following his brief appearance in this episode. Following his appearance in Oz, Harris took a number of roles in a variety of TV and film, getting his big break in 2000 and when he played Jimi Hendrix in a TV movie for Showtime. Later that year, Harris would receive his first NAACP Image Award nomination in the Outstanding Supporting Actor in a Motion Picture category, along with a Blockbuster Movie Award nomination in the Favourite Supporting Actor in a Motion Picture category for his role as Julius Campbell in Remember the Titans. In 2002, Harris appeared in the cult classic Paid in Full, based on the true story of three Harlem drug dealers, in which Harris played Kingpin Easy Faison. 2002 also saw Harris land his most famous role, playing Avon Barksdale in 33 episodes of HBO's The Wire, a show which received universal acclaim and is considered to be one of the greatest TV shows of all time. Since the end of The Wire, in 2012, Harris appeared in Broadway revival of A Streetcar Named Desire, playing Howard Mitchell. Also in 2012, Harris appeared in Dread, the reboot of the Judge Dredd franchise, 2015's Creed, the spin-off from the Rocky franchise, as well as its upcoming 2018 sequel, and also appeared in 2017's Blade Runner 2049. On the production side of things, this is the last episode directed by Darnell Martin. 
Since her time on Oz, Martin has remained a TV director, working on shows such as Law & Order Special Victims Unit, a show which would feature a number of Oz alumni, Grey's Anatomy, Gossip Girl, The Mentalist, Chicago Fire, The Vampire Diaries, and The Walking Dead. Martin has also worked as a writer, working on the movies Prison Song in 2001, which also starred Harold Perrineau, and Cadillac Records in 2008, which featured Eamon Walker, both of which she also directed. My episode MVP... Bloody hell, this was a toughie. Obviously, you've got Beecher having his moment where he finally stands up to Schillinger, but he only really appears in the final five or six minutes of the episode, so I couldn't really give it to him for the whole thing. Augustus was a close runner and would have made him the first back-to-back winner. We see a little bit more of his personality again, and he came to the defence of Oz newbie Eugene Dobbins. But I'm going to award the MVP to Donald Groves. While his attempted murder of Leo was a completely misguided attempt to impress Saeed, to see the change in him after meeting with the mother of Officer Smith where it dawns on him what he has done, and then the fear that he has once he's strapped into the chair for his execution, I thought Sean Whitesell played that very well. Just before I wrap things up, I'm going to dip into the mailbag again because I received this from Jess, who is an Oz fan in Australia, which absolutely blows my mind that I have someone listening on the other side of the world. She asks, do you have any plans to have former cast members or crew speak on the show? I noticed Tom Fontana follows the podcast Instagram, which you can also do using the handle at Inside Oz Podcast. And Dean Winters in particular is super passionate about the show, meaning Oz. I'm not sure if Mr. Winters has listened to the podcast or not. To keep the answer to this short... I would love to have interviews with cast and or crew on the podcast. I'd love to get an interview with Adewale in particular. I've always wanted to pick his brain about the Simon Adebisi character. I have so many questions that I want to ask J.K. Simmons. And there are a whole bunch of others that I would love to speak to. Obviously, these interviews would only be possible assuming that they can fit them in around their schedules. An interview with Tom Fontana would be the king of all interviews that I could get. However, to do that interview justice and do it in long form, I would need a lot of Mr. Fontana's time. Tom has recently been named the showrunner and executive producer on, I think it's a show called City on a Hill, an upcoming drama for Showtime. And he also has some other projects in the works too, so his time is extremely short. That is not to say that it won't ever happen, but it would depend upon his availability to do so, and the same goes for anybody that I would like to interview. Having said that, I do remain hopeful that I can get some guests on the podcast to discuss their time on the show. But Jess, thank you for your question and I hope you are enjoying listening to the podcast. That is everything for episode 7, Plan B. As always, you can get in touch with the show just like Jess did by emailing any questions or comments to insideozpodcast at gmail.com or by following the show on Twitter and Instagram using the handle at InsideOzPodcast. If you have missed any of the previous episodes, you can go back and catch up on iTunes, on Podbean, Stitcher Radio, Acast, and all other major podcasting platforms. Subscribe to the show so that you never miss an episode, and leave a like or a five-star review wherever you can. It really helps out with getting the show noticed. Next episode will be the finale to Oz Season 1. Will Saeed unveil his master plan? Will Schillinger get his revenge on Beecher? And will McManus's cap make one final appearance? Find out in episode 8 of Inside Oz as we play a game of checkers. Catch you next time, everybody. Inside.